Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church, and uh, my name is Chris, as I said earlier. Um, today, uh, just as a reminder, I'm going to be pulling from the app, and so uh, even as I get ready to jump in, just be aware that I'm going to be referencing a series of verses today that can be found inside of the Encounter Church app. Uh, this is my favorite day of the year, and it's not just because as a pastor, um, even though in some ways this is the Super Bowl, and today is the only day a Tom Brady uh, reference is appropriate for me in this moment, and uh, because in no other day of the year do I look like him or do I have any other comparison. But today for the church is the Super Bowl. This is the one day that changes everything, and this is the day that victory kind of breaks forth and a title is given and hope is, def- is, is re- given to us, and it's one of those exciting days. And so thank you for being here at Encounter Church. Uh, today's going to be interesting. I'm going to give you a warning. Because um, today I want to I walk you through uh, maybe some deeper concepts than um, maybe you've ever really spent time reflecting on. And I promise it won't make your head hurt, but it will perhaps by the end make you go, hmm. Because I, I think church should be a place where we think and we reflect. It's not a place where you turn your brain off. I think of all places, it's the place where we turn our brain to a whole higher level and thinking and reflecting and processing. I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. Let me go ahead and get that out of the thing. I don't know if I've got any more BBC Sherlock Holmes loving people. Uh, My man Benedict, anybody else? Okay, I got like one. All right, the rest of you are totally missing out. Um, But I've always loved Sherlock Holmes. I always loved the, the way he was able to see through a case and flip it and then you know, BBC with Benedict just takes it to a whole new level. And, um, but there's this story, joke kind of comes out of this, like for those people who like Sherlock Holmes, where uh, Watson and Holmes go on a camping trip. And uh, they're out, and kind of the beauty of nature, and after dinner and a bottle of wine, they, go, they lay down for the night and they're out. And at some point in the middle of the night, they're both asleep, and Holmes wakes up and uh, nudges Watson. And Watson kind of is awakened from his deep sleep, and Holmes says, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson uh, kind of looks around, lets his eyes adjust, and he responds, I see millions of stars. And then Holmes says, well, what does that tell you? And Watson because it's late, ponders a little bit longer than he normally does. And he says, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and perhaps billions of planets. Astrologically, I believe that Saturn, it appears, is in Leo. And horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately 3.15 a.m. And theologically, I can see that if there is a creator or a god, that that he or she or it is large and vast and that we are small and insignificant. And meteorologically, I suppose that we're going to have a clear day tomorrow. And then Watson, uh, after he's finishing unpacking all of his observations, says, Holmes, what do you see? And Holmes responds, Watson, someone stole our tent. (laughs) That's what I see. That... Watson, in the midst of all of that, had missed the glaringly obvious thing that their tent had been stolen, that it was gone. And what I'd like to do today, full disclosure, 
is to do for you what Holmes did for Watson. That in the midst of Easter and all that perhaps we could see, that we don't miss the one thing we were supposed to see. That in all the observations that can be drawn out of Easter, that we don't miss the one direct implication for you and I, that Easter screams. You see, Easter is not just a date. It's a declaration. There's a lot packed inside of that statement, Happy Easter. And over the course of this morning, over just the next 25 minutes, I want us to, to, like Holmes, see the glaringly obvious thing that we can so easily miss in the course of a day like this and grab hold of that powerful truth. And, and to kind of illustrate the point, I'm not going to teach or preach a passage from the first four letters. They're called the Gospels. They're the account of Jesus' life and ministry. I'm not going to talk about the what of Easter. I want to talk about the so what of Easter. The, what's the point of Easter? Why does Easter even matter to begin with? And, and to, to jump off, instead of going to there, I want to look at a few sentences written by a man who had personally experienced the power of the so what of Easter, who writes a letter, one of his longest, one of his most thoughtful, one of his most theologically rich and deep and full letters that he writes in all of the New Testament letters, his big so what of Easter captured in 16 chapters. I want to pull from that letter so that you and I can understand the so what of Easter because this so what had transformed his life and I believe it has the power to transform ours too. It was written by a guy named Paul, and Paul is originally known as Saul. He, that's the name he's given in the course of everyday life. He's what he grows up with. Saul is brilliant. He's estimated to be trilingual. Um, he had a really kind of vast knowledge of his, the Jewish faith. It's, it's believed by some scholars that had Paul not, Saul not become a Christian, he would have probably been one of the more famous, if not one of the most famous, Jewish rabbinic scholars. He was a thoughtful brilliant, passionate man. He was bound to, if he was alive today, he would have been at the Ivy League schools, not just for an undergrad, but for his graduate school and his doctorate, and then would have ended up preaching, teaching, lecturing in one of those Ivy League schools too. This was this man. He was brilliant. And then he has this experience where his life has changed, and it's such a radical change. A man who was trying to persecute and prosecute and kill Christians is now become a Christian. And the world, the, the world doesn't know what to do with him. So he retreats for a few years, and he studies, and he prays, and he processes. And then, out of nowhere, three years later, he steps onto the scene, and he, uh, more than anyone else in the early church, is responsible for the spread of Christianity. And he writes this letter, one of his most famous letters, to the church in Rome. The, the Roman Empire was what was controlling the world. At the time, the Roman kind of seat of power was in Rome, and Paul had never traveled to Rome. He had never actually been part of a church there. He had never helped to spread Christianity there. And Paul decides as a kind of a primer, he's like, I want to travel to Rome, so I want to make sure these people are brought up to speed with understanding Christianity. Now, here's the challenge. For, for many of us, even if you 
uh, maybe are in church, and this is one of those rare times that you're even here, um, you probably have a firm grasp on Christianity more so than what these people would have had. The year is 56 AD. Jesus is risen from the dead at 33 AD. So only a short period of time has gone by. This is not the age of the internet. Things travel really, really slowly. And these individuals who somehow hear about Christianity are living in Rome, and there's a church that's growing in this urban capital of the world. And Paul wants to send a letter to make sure that before he arrives, they understand the fullness of, the, of their faith. Because here's the thing, while for us today we separate Judaism and Christianity, in the early church there wasn't a separation. And this is critical to understand, that for the early church they were all Jews. They saw this, this movement of Christianity as just a fulfillment. It was a sect of, of Judaism. And, and so Paul, knowing that this group in Rome doesn't have the rich Jewish heritage and history that many of the people he's been spending time with does. And so he writes this letter, this profoundly long, thoughtful letter that we, we don't have time to go in today. But what I want to do is I want to jump past the first seven chapters where he lays out all the arguments and just kind of couch it with this simple statement that for the ancient Jewish faith at that time, it was really centered around two promises, the promised land and the promised one. This was kind of the two center critical points for the ancient Jewish faith at the time that Christianity is born into. The promised land was partially fulfilled. Israel, as a geographical and nation state, existed then. And they longed for the promised one. And Jesus comes, and the people in the Christian, this early Christian movement, say Jesus is this promised one. And this is what Paul's writing to them to understand. Why is a promised one necessary? Why is it even important? Why should there be a promised one that hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament talk about? And this is what he writes in these 16 chapters. And in chapter 8, he starts to pivot. He starts to move a little bit. He's, he's laid out his foundation, and now he's wanting to talk about the so what. And to talk about the so what, he recaps again. So just verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to the response of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In this one sentence, you can flip it and get all of chapter 1 through 7 of the book of Romans. He starts off with, there is a sense that God is against us. That there is a sense that the world is broken. That foundation to the Jewish and Christian faith in that time was the understanding that the world was broken. It was not the way it was supposed to be. And that people labeled that brokenness, what Paul labeled that brokenness through chapters 1 through 7 is he calls it death, or he calls it sin. And those are kind of theologically loaded terms that maybe you grew up in a church and sin was a word used to beat you up while protecting the person who used it as a weapon. Or maybe it was, it was a way to manipulate you and get things out of you that unfortunately that word has become tainted. What it, it simply meant was a failure. It was a, a falling short of God's standards which still can, can be a little confusing, so let me put it into our terms. I think that we all internally understand that we have standards. Even if you're maybe here today and you're not sure about a God and His standards, I would say that you and I have standards for our own lives, right? That you and I have expectations. We have a certain invisible moral code that we live our own lives by. 
I remember growing up, and my dad had, had kind of bailed out on my mom and, and left me with at her and then another brother later. And my mom, uh, not graduating from high school, um, a single mom working as a cashier in Burger King, is trying to raise two sons, never graduated high school. And, and there was a lot of anger inside of me growing up at this man who just completely abandoned his responsibility. You know, like, it takes two. And he walked out. And there was this anger and frustration as a teenager growing up where I said, I will never become like that deadbeat. That what will mark my life will be faithfulness. What will mark my life will be I will keep my word. I will be a better man than that man ever was. And yet I find myself in college. Um, because of my apprehension of just all of that, I really didn't date too much. And, uh, and then I get in college and I get my first, like, you know, like that, where you, back then, anybody remember Delilah? You know what I'm talking about? You'd be like, Delilah, girl, I want to dedicate this song to this girl. Can you, ah, you know, and the, like Delilah would do her voice and be like, this song is going out to a special lady from Chris, right? And, you know, and this is like my first kind of Delilah serious relationship where I wanted all the nation to know about my devotion to this girl. And yet, in the midst of that, about three months into our relationship, I find myself cheating on her with someone else. One of the lowest points of my, my life up until that, because I remember that moment so vividly, and it wasn't like I believed in a God and a standard that he had that I had went against. It was I had violated this core standard of my own life. Right, and John, John Mayer kind of captured it. I remember it's kind of around the same time. He's like, and gravity is working against me, right? He sings this song that this idea of like gravity is pulling me down. I'll never know what makes a man with all the love his heart can stand of dreams away of throwing it all away. Oh, gravity. And I'm listening to that song, and then I'm like, is it appropriate to call Delilah and dedicate that song? Because I've violated this own standard in my life. And at the end of the day, call it whatever you want to call it, but that's what sin is. It's a violation of a standard, and it's not just bad things. It's also the good things that we don't do. And kind of to, to break it down, let me, let me get into your head for a second. I think sometimes if we hear this statement of God, Paul's saying, is God against us? That we struggle to get past 31 because we picture heaven as a room full of large filing cabinets. You walk up and you're like, oh, A through H, well, that would be me. And pull it out and you're like, oh, middle school, high school, large file folder, right? And you start to kind of look through and you're like, oh, oh, this week, yeah, mm, mm, Harsh. I was. I don't. I had a scrappy week this week. I don't know anybody else in the room is scrappy. I'm scrappy, and sometimes things can fire me up. And I go in. I'm just like I'm a fight waiting to happen. I'm like, is this a room with a fight? Anybody want to fight? Nope. Nope. Okay. Moving on to the next room. Anybody want to fight in this room? Because I'm here. And it's just one of those weeks for me. I'm scrappy. I would come home twice this week, and I looked at my wife, and I was like, I'm scrappy again today. I was so harsh. And this one person, this. Poor sweet person who had nothing to do with the problem, and I'm sitting in front of her saying very hard things and being harsh, and as I'm leaving that place, they call my wife, 
And she get, I get home and she's like, I figured you were because she was just going on and on and on about your time with her. And I was like, yeah, I'm just scrappy this week. And it's like, yeah, harsh. And then you're like, oh, oh, yeah. yeah I remember that one, too. Um, I don't know about anybody else, but pride. Anybody else got that struggle? No like to admit when you're wrong because you aren't wrong ever, right? You're always right. You never mess it up. You're, you're a walking Wikipedia page that never needs to be corrected because you just got this thing down. And, and this is me. Like, um, no, of course I'm not wrong. Oh, the universe is wrong. I'm right. And this arrogance of not wanting to admit that or own that or see that. And then remembering that sin isn't just the bad things that we do. It's also the good things we don't do. I don't know about anybody else in this room. This is like therapy for me, so thank you. Um, but it's also selfishness. Anybody else where I am in a moment with my wife or my daughter and I know clearly I should be so much more of a help to them. And I'm just like, hey, can you grab that for me? Or just this selfishness, or like, I can't do that right now because I've got more important things to do. Right? That selfishness thing inside of you that bubbles up, that makes you the most important person in the universe, and everyone else is just kind of orbiting. They're the moon around your, your pristine planet. And that for many of us, I think when we think about this statement of God being for us, not against us, that there's a fear we have. That in heaven, there's this filing cabinet, and it's just loaded with all the things that you and I have ever done and all the things that you and I have never not done. And it's just sitting there. And for the, for the ancient Jewish faith, uh, which is Paul's kind of roots and what he's drawing on, he starts to move into summarizing what he does from verse 1 through uh, chapter 1 through 7. He goes on to verse 32 when he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? See, now Paul's starting to shift. He's like, let me recap everything I just outlined in chapters 1 through 7, that this idea of the ancient Jewish faith was rooted around the sacrificial system that was centered around the temple. And let me kind of break that down. So what happens is there is a, a book in the Old Testament. You don't have to read it. I'll just tell you where it is so that you know I'm not making this up. It's in a book, a letter called Leviticus. And this book, chapter 16 of Leviticus, is the, the very explicit outlines for how this sacrificial system worked in the temple. Uh, there was uh, a portion of the sacrificial system that revolved around two goats, and these goats were brought in, and one goat would be sacrificed on the altar, and the other goat would be brought to the priest. And then the priest would do this. The priest kind of symbolically would take all of these things that were listed, and he would place his hands on the goat's head, and he would begin to kind of list all of these things out loud. This was this goat that at the time, and in fact still exists in our culture today as a name, the scapegoat would then be released from Jerusalem, would go off into the wilderness, and would symbolically, it would relocate our, you know, so the file for Chris Causey had been dropped into the scapegoat's file. And now Chris's file is clean. It's, it's clear. It's been relocated. The scapegoat goes out of Jerusalem and it's led into the wilderness, which is a pretty okay plan. But there's a problem. There's a couple stories in ancient Jewish history where one shepherd 
uh, is out in the wilderness and comes across a bunch of scapegoats who have all met and mated. And so their sin is multiplied. All the guilt, all their shame has, has birthed babies. And now there are scapegoats everywhere. And they're like, this is slightly a problem. But that still doesn't do it. The worst time is when the scapegoat comes back to Jerusalem. I guess the goat remembered the path he took, and he got hungry. And the goat comes back to Jerusalem, and people start to freak out. They're like, the goats come back. And it's like, I mean, think about it. It's Facebook memories of all the memories you don't want to remember. And it's not just on your page, it's on everybody's page. When that goat comes running in, when that goat turns the corner, it's like, bah, bah, bah. and it's all of your stuff on display. And people are like, this is a problem. That goat came back. And my stuff is still there. Because at the end of the day, a goat, an animal, can't take away the guilt and shame that I feel on the inside. And so to escalate, they started a new practice that was not explicitly stated in Leviticus 16. They started to tie things to the goat's neck and throw the goat off the cliff. Because they wanted to make sure that that goat didn't come bounding back into the city. I mean, we still do the same thing, right? When we're caught with something, I mean, it's almost a weekly headline of someone. A governor just went to jail last week because he tried to cover it up and tried to cover it up and tried to cover it up and tried to cover it up, and eventually it came back in. And public view, and everyone saw it. And it all started with a little tiny cover-up, a little bit of a kind of brushing it aside so no one sees it. And this is what Paul is trying to emphasize. He's walking through this, and he's like, the system is not sufficient. The goat can still come back. And so what he does is he proposes a different plan, right? He goes into verse 33, where there's this almost a logical progression. He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And so he's starting to move through and he says, all right, I want to help you understand what Christianity is. It is the Jesus file. That it's been relocated there. That, that sin, that brokenness inside of us and that we see demonstrated in the world has been moved to his file. And that's why he noticed, he says, as he's walking through verse 33, he's like, who shall bring any charge against us? He was like, well, there's no charge in here. And well, the goat thing, we all know how that turned out. That's not working either. And so he then starts to pivot, and he starts to discuss who shall actually bring any charge against me. And he's like, well, in Jesus' file, there is something against me. Jesus is the one who can bring something against me. Jesus is the one who has the record still. And Paul's like, look, I understand that Jesus has the record, but he then goes explicit, right? He, in verse 33, if you put it up on the screen, you can see it. He goes from who will bring any charge against those whom God has cho chosen. He says, it is God who justifies. And then he says, who then is the one who condemns? No one. 
Well, how can it be no one? Christ Jesus who died. It's in Jesus' file. How in the world does this no longer hold against us? How does this, because this is the cross. To, to get very specific, Easter is not one date, it's two connected together. There is the cross where, like that symbolic placing on the head of the goat, these things were placed your sin, my sin, the sins of the people were placed on Jesus and was nailed on the cross. But that isn't enough. What he was trying to say is that it's not just that he died. More than that. He's like, no, no, it's not just the cross. It's the resurrection. He's come back to life. He said Easter, the beauty of Easter, is that Jesus has come and he's removed our sin, not relocated, our sin. That there is no ash, there is no record, there is no filing cabinet with your name filled. There is no thing he holds against us that those charges, those punishments, those guilts, those sins, those things were nailed onto the cross and that he took the weight of our penalty and our sin. That that is the glaring, so what, of Easter. That you and I don't have our sins filed away. We've had our sins forgiven. That you and I do not have to fear walking into heaven and having the filing cabinet open because he's removed the file as far as the east is from the west. That for those who are here today who are Christians, that there is no record against us. But let me speak to those who are Christians in this room. What's the reality? Is that many of us, as a pastor, I spend a lot of time sitting with people who are still trapped and imprisoned by their past. They would tell you they believe in Christ. They believe in what Christ has done. They have put their trust in what happened on the cross, and they believe in the power of the resurrection, and yet there still seems to be something against them. Some choice, some past regret, some decision that's been made, some date, and it's kept them imprisoned. This idea that I'm divorced, God can never love me or forgive me. You pick it. We all have those things that creep into our mind. And what would yours be? This one's blank. What is that moment? What is that decision? What is that insecurity? What is that brokenness that resides in you that keeps you chained? that works against the very declaration of Easter. What is it? Picture it on this card. What is it in your filing cabinet that you're so afraid he's going to pull out against you? And the declaration of Easter is that whatever that may be, it's been erased. It's been forgiven. And that you've been set free. That there is no record in heaven, nothing that separates you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that is not a magic trick. That is the power of the resurrection of Easter that says what was placed on the cross has been erased by grace. Broke through through the power of the resurrection. 
And that we can have hope on Sunday because what was held against us on Friday is no more. That we've been set free. You've been set free. And for anyone in this room who is not a Christian but feels weighted down by the past, feels weighted down by the choices and the decisions, that that freedom exists, that freedom is held out to you, that Paul picks up on that when he keeps going. He's, he's starting to get a little bit excited, and we can't read it in the text, but let me read it for you. He then says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's like, this isn't some legal transaction. This is a love transaction. This is motivated by his love for you and his love for me. This is something powerful. And he says, you know what? Okay, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Obviously, it's not anything in my character. It's not any choice that I've made in my past or my present or even in my future. None of that can separate me. He's like, but let's be thorough because Paul's very thorough. He's like, well, maybe it's not some character defect or flaw or some choice that I've made. Maybe it's a circumstance. And so then he pivots. He says, shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. He's like, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered to be sheep, to be slaughtered. This is a reference to an Old Testament passage. Remember that Christianity is rooted in this ancient Jewish system of the sacrifice. And so he's kind of calling that out and reminding us. He's like, look, I've faced all those circumstances. Paul's like, check, persecution, Check nakedness, check hunger. The only one that he doesn't check is the sword. But ironically, the same letter that's written to this people, this church in Rome, that happens to be the place that he experiences the sword when he's beheaded less than 10 years later. Like Paul's like, there is not a circumstance. And he's like, well, maybe I haven't made it clear. Let's go back. Verse 37, he says, no. Actually, it's even better in the Greek. It says, but. Like a big, large butt. There is nothing. He's like, there is nothing. But in all these things, he says. In fact, he says, but in all these things. Because maybe I don't have a list long enough to capture the things. Because maybe he recognizes he's arguing like a toddler or a four or five-year-old. I don't know if you've ever done that. Where they pull like things out and you're like, I mean, are you a lawyer? Like, no, I didn't clearly spell out that statement and phrase, but... You somehow like amended my statement and said, well, you didn't actually clarify that I couldn't use markers on the wall. You said crayons. And markers are clearly a different substance than a crayon. Oh, you meant any marking device at all. Oh, you didn't mean I couldn't key my name into the wall, though, because that's not technically marking. That's removing. Marking is adding. And so Paul, knowing our proclivity to do these things, Paul says, no, in all of these things. He's like, whatever it is that you can think of, all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love it. He's like, you're not just not condemned. You're not just forgiven. You've been set free. Like that's the two glaring declarations, the so what's of Easter, is that you are forgiven and you've been set free. He says, to make the point, he says, we are more than conquerors. He could have just said conquerors, and that would have been like, all right, I'm, I'm feeling that. He's like, no, more than conquerors. He won upset. He says, 
For I am convinced. Paul's like, let me shift out of this theological treatise that I've been writing. I just, let me speak to you personally. I am convinced because I have been beaten. I have been shipwrecked. I have experienced all these things. And here's what I know, that I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That the beauty and the power of Easter is what he's saying is that there is no character defect. There is no circumstance circumstance you find yourself in that can separate you from the love of God, the love of God that he has for you and the love of God to move you. That the beauty of Easter that Paul is saying is that it's okay when you face a setback. Because what he has demonstrated in my life is that every time I think I've had a setback, it turns into a set up for what he wants to do in my life. And that's not just some clever phrase, Paul says. That is what he has done for me. And I am convinced that even in the setbacks of life, that I can trust him and depend on him and know that there is no file against me, that I have not been filed away, I have been forgiven, and that I am not still imprisoned to my past, I have been set free, and that setbacks, no matter how great or small, no matter deep or how wide, no matter how scary or just insignificant, that they all can be a setup for what God wants to do in and through my life because He loves me. And because He loves me, there's nothing He's not willing to do for me. And that's why Paul asked that question. If he's for you, what in the world can be against you? That that's the so what of Easter. That there is no addiction in your past. There is no divorce in your past. There is no choice in your past. There is no moment in today present. There is no decision that you can make tomorrow that can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. That is the freeing declaration of Easter. Said and proclaimed over all of us every time we look someone in the face and we say, Happy Easter. And that, as Holmes said to Watson, is what we miss. This one day in the year that we celebrate what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the beauty and the hope that you bring. Thank you that there is no filing system, there is no penalty, there is no prison that can hold us and keep us away from your love. So thank you, Dad. Thank you for the beauty and the reminder of Easter and the hope that it brings. I pray that we would be people who walk in forgiveness, that we'd be people who walk in the hope and in the love that Easter brings. For those who are present, God, who who would say that they follow you that have been imprisoned, I pray even today that in the same way they watch that paper just disappear before their eyes, that they would be whispered and reminded that there is nothing. There's nothing that can be held against them. That there is no choice. That guilt and shame have been erased and removed. 
for those who are maybe in this room, God, who are like me in college processing faith and choices. I pray that they would hear your love for them through Easter. That even if they're not willing or open, um, that you are. That you loved them. And that you love them, even if they're not sure about who you are. And God, thank you. Thank you for the celebration of the resurrection that has an impact and implication over every area of our lives. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Uh, we want to respond today the same way we respond every day. So if maybe this is your first time. Let me tell you how we typically respond. Uh, we sing a song at the end. We really do believe Sundays can be the most hopeful and helpful part of the week. And that uh, out of that, we want to give space to reflect, to, to kind of process through what is the, the implications of that truth in our lives? What are the implications of that reality in our lives? And so today we're going to sing a song called Resurrecting, which um, focuses and, and kind, of, kind of fixes our eyes and our thoughts on what Jesus, had, what Jesus did in Easter. Uh, for some of us in this room, it's also a place that we carve out to kind of respond, take next steps, and we use the app to do that. But for some of you in this room that uh, maybe as I was processing through the freedom and the forgiveness that Jesus brings, you were like, you know what, I don't believe that, but I'm open to learning more about that. That we're not a church that wants to push anybody into making any kind of decision. That we want to create open spaces where people can have dialogues and debate about doubts so that their faith, if, or even no faith, can be processed through and deepened. And so maybe if that's you, then just to let, you know, even as you go in this week, something that could be a next step for you is I've put something in the app called Exploring Faith, and it's a simple video. You can listen to it, audio or video, on the way to work this week. It just gives you a little bit of a, an insight to, to Christianity as a whole. It's just a, a really, a, a communicator far better than I am who's just unpacking the truths of Christianity. And there's a whole series of videos if you, if you want to unpack that more and learn more about the Christian faith. And I, I went ahead and put that in the app for you so that you could watch that. For maybe for some of you, if you want to uh, kind of jump on board with Encounter Church, you've been coming for a while, and you say, you know what, I want to serve or I want to join a life group and kind of get to know some people, then you can do that through the app as well. And then finally, this is kind of a cool moment for us because this is our last Easter in this space. I don't know if you know that, which is really exciting. Um, yeah, because in about a month, um, actually less than a month, uh, we will be breaking ground and uh, kind of, com com kind of, I guess, construction. I don't know. I don't come out of this world. Um, we will start construction on our new space. And, um, and so by the summer, we will be into this new space, this 10,000 square foot space about a mile from here where uh, we will be able to do seven days a week what we've been able to do here seven hours a week, which is to be hope and help to our community because we believe a church should be known for what it does for the community, not what it takes from it. And just to be able to carve out that space um, is pretty exciting. So just to, for those nostalgic people, kind of hug the chair a little bit because this is your last Easter in here. We're going to be here for a few more months, but this is your last Easter. So you and that chair have a moment and you say, I'll miss you. because last Easter because I'm moving on up like the Jeffersons about a mile down the road for next Easter. And it's going to be insane there. And so we're excited. But the reason we can do all of that 
Um, the reason we can hold an egg drop last weekend where over 2,500 people show up is because of the generosity of our people. And so this is the final thing we use this space for. We use it to carve out space for those who call Encounter Church Home to be able to give, um, to be a part of the mission that we, we are and that we exist in this community to be a part of. And so uh, if you're a first-time guest, just know that that's why you're seeing a basket going around. It's because you're sitting amongst the generous people who are part of a generous mission of God's love and grace in this community. And this is how we fuel that mission. So I invite you to stand now. The band's going to lead us in a song. Thank you for being here at Encounter Church today. We hope that this was hopeful and helpful and that we walk out as free and forgiven people.